on September the 14th, 2016, I started going through some epistles over the last five and a half years. We've studied Galatians, Ephesians, and last week we finished Philippians. My dad asked me two weeks ago, where are we going next? Can't wait to find out. And I told him, I can't wait to find out either. (laughs) I said, all I know is it's going to be another epistle. I was praying about which letter to study next, and I just wasn't given peace about tackling another epistle. And God started dealing with me about going in another direction entirely, and I had no idea where he was leading me at first. And this Brother DeGarmo here, your Sunday school lesson two weeks ago actually confirmed what direction to take uh, next. So where are we going in our Wednesday night Bible study? Go to the Old Testament. We'll do a complete 180 here, and let's go to the book of Esther. This book could have been called the book of Hadassah. That is her Hebrew name. But her Persian name is Esther. The book of Esther is one of only two books named for a woman, Ruth being the other. Esther is the account of the attempt by Haman, the Agagite, to exterminate the Jews that were throughout the kingdom of Ahasuerus. And it gives us the background of the Jewish days of Purim. And we're just going to kind of introduce the book tonight. We will read two verses here in a minute. But I want to give a little bit of a background to try to place where this book is located chronologically in the Bible. The way our Bible is canonized, it is not in chronological order always. And there is an order to it, but it's not always chronological, which I'm sure many of you know that. So when God called the children of Israel out of Egypt, He led them to the promised land. They eventually became the kingdom of Israel. Because Solomon married many strange women, meaning married a bunch of Gentile women that turned his heart. He ended up worshiping false gods of his wives, and God said he was going to rend the kingdom out of Solomon's hand, but he wasn't going to do it in Solomon's lifetime. He was going to wait until his son Rehoboam took over. And when that took place, the kingdom split into two houses. You had the northern house of Israel, and that was first led by Jeroboam. You had the southern house of the kingdom of Judah, and that was first led by Rehoboam. And Israel was always wicked in the sight of the Lord. They never did right. God allowed them to be taken captive. They were sown among the nations. In time, the house of Judah, they adopted the same abominations that the house of Israel did, and God finally had enough of them as well and their rebellion. And so they were also taken captive. Theirs would not be a scattering to the point of losing their identity. God had a purpose for Judah. And so they went out into Babylonian captivity for 70 years. And what is recorded in our Old Testament after the Babylonian captivity is known as the post-captivity books. There are six of these books. Three are prophetic. Those are Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And three are historical. That's Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. All six of those books take place after the Babylonian captivity which came to an end when the Persians took over the Babylonians and their land, and Cyrus issued a decree that they could, the Jews could return back to Judea and restore the city, rebuild the temple. 
The Bible says in 2 Chronicles 36, 22, and 23, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord spoken by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom. And he put it also in writing, saying, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth hath the Lord God of heaven given me, and he hath charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all his people? The Lord his God be with him, and let him go up. So he released them from captivity to be able to go back into the land, do some rebuilding. And then Ezra is the first post-captivity history book. And it opens the same way that Second Chronicles closes out with Cyrus issuing the decree that they could return and rebuild. And we also know that that decree was not just to rebuild the temple, but also the city. We know that from Isaiah 44, 28, which says, That saith of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, Thou shalt be built, and to the temple thy foundation shall be laid. And so Ezra, it deals with the rebuilding of the temple. And after Ezra, we have Nehemiah, which deals with the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. And it appears from what I have studied that most people will place the book of Esther somewhere in between the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. But I have discovered that any attempt to try to place that timing is it's futile. I mean, it is just nearly impossible to do. And so I have really struggled with that. And in Esther, we will read these two verses tonight. In Esther chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, this is Ahasuerus which reigned from India even unto Ethiopia, over an hundred and seven and twenty provinces, smiley face, <laughs> that in those days when the king Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, the palace. So some will point to Ezra 4, 6, which says, And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, wrote they unto him an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. And what they'll say is, that's the same Ahasuerus as in Esther. But the problem with that is, uh, Ahasuerus, or Ahasuerus, however you want to pronounce it. Some people say Ahasuerus. The problem with that is that is a title and it is not a name. It is like a king, even though it will say King Ahasuerus, but it is just a title of a position. It does appear from Ezra chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, that uh, Ahasuerus is the same as Artaxerxes because of how it's worded in Ezra 4, verses 6 and 7. And if I got this correct... <laughs> then Ahasuerus is of Persian origin. That would be the Persian way to say it. Artaxerxes would be the Chaldean form or the Syrian form of how to say Ahasuerus. And then I found to further complicate the issue, many say that the one recorded in secular history known as Xerxes is also the same person. So some say they're all separate. (laughs) I'm saying all this to you really fast, but it took me hours of like, what? Of trying to figure all this out. And so I need a lot more time to look at this to be sure, but I don't think a fully satisfactory answer exists out there. However, if Esther 
does occur sometime between Ezra and Nehemiah, then it's just interesting to consider that the events that happened in Nehemiah, if, if what, what happened in Ezra didn't happen, they would have never been recorded. Not at least with Nehemiah, because he would have been exterminated. Because they both worked in Shushan in the palace. I shouldn't say both worked, she was the queen. But Nehemiah was the king's cupbearer in the same palace where um, Ahasuerus was. Even more intriguing, if that timeline is true, is the possibility that Esther may have even known Nehemiah and may have even played a role in Artaxerxes' kindness towards Nehemiah. Esther, again, being the queen, Nehemiah being there as the cupbearer. Nehemiah 2.6 makes an interesting statement. It's a parenthetical statement, but it, it makes a statement that the queen was sitting by Artaxerxes when Nehemiah's countenance was sad and he's speaking to the king there. Now, that's an interesting statement. Why is that in there? Well, it could be that there's something more significant that meets the eye. It could just be the fact that in that culture, the queen usually didn't sit next to the king when it was a feast and things like that, and maybe it's just telling us that information. I don't know. But I find it intriguing nonetheless. Ultimately, we have no way of knowing for sure, so aren't you glad I wasted your time? We don't know where it fits exactly. We don't know if she would have known Nehemiah. But it is an intriguing thought, but we'll have to just leave it at that. We also don't know who the penman is. Many people speculate that it was um, Mordecai. They cite Esther 9.29, which says, Then Esther the queen, the daughter of Abihel, and Mordecai the Jew, wrote with all authority to confirm this second letter of Purim. Since Mordecai had firsthand knowledge, since he had the ability to read and write, as we know from chapter 9 and verse 29, and because he was writing these letters throughout Ahasuerus' kingdom uh, to the Jews to, about this holiday of Purim, it leads many to speculate that Mordecai would have been the one who actually penned Esther, but we don't know. So what do we know? We know Esther is one of the most unique books in all of the Bible. In fact, it may not be out of line to tell you that it is the most unique Bible, uh, book in our Bible. But what makes Esther so unique is what is not mentioned. God is not mentioned. God's Word is not mentioned. Prayer is not mentioned. Angels are not mentioned. Faith is not mentioned. Eternity is not mentioned. And there's no mention of Esther anywhere in the New Testament. This has caused some to wonder, then why is this book even in our Bible? Why is it a part of it? The reason Esther is included is because this book will clearly show us the providence of God. Noah Webster defined theological providence as the care and superintendence which God exercises over His creatures. A belief in divine providence is a source of great consolation to good men. By divine providence is often understood God Himself. Another definition I came across says providence is the continuous agency of God by which He makes all events of the physical and moral universe fulfill the original design with which He created it. And then J. Vernon McGee, who had a way of putting things on the bottom shelf, he wrote, providence is the means by which God directs all things. And, and he went on to state it this way, practically providence is the hand of God in the glove of history and that glove will never move until He moves it. God is at the steering wheel of the universe. 
providence means that God is behind the scenes, shifting and directing them. And so while we don't know the exact date of the book of Esther, we know enough that Esther deals with those who remained in exile after they were free to go back to the land. And and that's how people tend to be. We get content where we're at. We get complacent where we are at. We can backslide into a position of complacency. And we're just content to dwell there. The Jews had established themselves in Babylon and they had grown comfortable. And when the Persians took over and released them, most were just content to stay right where they were at. And their attitude after they were in Babylon was far different than their attitude when they were being drugged out of Judea to go into Babylon. This is what we know about what they said when they went into captivity in Psalm 137 verses 1 through 6. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hanged our harps upon the willows in the midst thereof. For there they that carried us away captive required us a song. And they that wasted us required of us mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? If I forget thee, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her cunning. If I do not remember thee, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. If I prefer not Jerusalem above my chief joy. They wept when they went into captivity. They were sorrowful. They were grieving at the fact that they were leaving Jerusalem. And there at the river, they essentially had pledged their allegiance to Jerusalem. They were so serious about it, they said, if if we forget Jerusalem, my hand might as well forget how to play the harps. My mouth might as well stop singing the praise of God. Well, let enough time pass, and you'll begin to separate those who love Zion and those who don't. At first, they longed to return to Jerusalem. But just as soon as the opportunity came up for them to go back after the decree of Cyrus to Judea to once again build the city, build the temple, only about 50,000 Jews returned to Judea. They lost their song. They adopted the songs of the world, if you will. They chose to stay right where they were. The same is still true of the people of Israel today. More still live outside Israel than live inside of Israel. In fact, there's more children of Israel living in America than are living in the nation of Israel. And you see, that's the danger of becoming content. Being content in a strange land, you get used to it. You get used to the The world's allure, tastes, smells, comforts. You begin to get really connected to that. And the problem with being attached to the world is you'll begin to forget about God and the things of God. You'll no longer be singing the songs of God. 
Your service to God will slowly but surely dwindle away. And it will definitely hurt the next generation that will be raised behind that generation. Because the second generation, and even into the third, they're going to be far more likely to just stay put. I have seen it time and time again, and I'm sure you have as well. People come in, profess God, profess their allegiance to God, but in time, they drift back to the world. They end up living their life out in obscurity, never going on to do something for God, never going on to live a godly life. Maybe there wasn't enough root system in them. And through the tribulations and persecutions because of the Word, they were sidelined. Or maybe the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choked the Word in in their life and they became unfruitful. Whatever the reason, when you are drawn back to the world's captivity, and once you set up camp in the world again, you are not only endangering yourself, but you are endangering the next generation as well. And this is what we are going to find in the book of Esther. This is a people who just a generation or two earlier said, we will never forget Jerusalem. But now there's a multitude. I don't know the number. I couldn't find a satisfactory number. Some have it as high as two million that were still staying in exile. You have a multitude who are now happy to stay right where they're at in a strange land amongst foreign gods, against idolatrous, uh, among idolatrous people. And this was just before a generation said, Jerusalem is, is our chief joy. They did forget. But here's what we discover in the book of Esther, is that while God is never mentioned, God can still be seen in the background directing the events. For all of those Jews who chose to stay in exile, even though they were free to return, God is still going to providentially care for them. And we'll see it was God's providence protecting them, providing for them. And Because these are the Jews which chose to stay in exile, it has been said that the providence of God is how God will lead people who don't want to be led or are not being led by the will of God. The providence of God then takes over. I'm not sure if I'm connecting on that. Maybe it'll make sense as I go. There are those who will use terminology like, I sure was lucky. It was, it was by chance. It just, it's just how it happened to work out. What a coincidence. When in reality, it was the providence of God at work. Amen. If you're in Christ, then you can look back over your life, I'm sure, and you can see God's providence at work in your life. Amen. Maybe you were spared from what seemed like should have been an early death. I don't know when Brother Foley rolled that Cherokee. When did you roll that Jeep, brother? Before or after you became a printer? If you've ever seen the picture of that, it's amazing he walked away. God had a purpose for Brother Foley. The providence of God. And, And so, listen, you can look back over your life. You can see those things. Maybe you can look back at how God has directed you even 
though you didn't know him yet. It's amazing as we look back over our life and see this. I can see how God directed my mom to my dad for my benefit. I can see how God directed them to South Korea where they attended the haven under the leadership of Pastor Bill Stewart when I was just three years of age. I can see how God directed me down to Jekyll Island, Georgia to be born again. I can sense how God led me to work at Chick-fil-A where I would meet as a teenager my future wife of now almost 26 years and the mother of my four children. After I was saved, I can see how God directed me in my military career even though I wasn't right with Him early on. I can see how God led me back to South Korea 18 years later to get my heart right. And while there, I can see how God just happened to allow me to run into that same Bill Stewart who just happened to be visiting Weejambu Baptist Church where I was stationed and on a Monday. And I just happened to straggle in there on a Monday afternoon, which I never, ever did. But this one day I did. And he just happened to talk to me. It wasn't happenstance. It was God's providence. And in God's providence, God was teaching me how He is always in the shadows directing in my life. While I was attending more training at Keesler Air Force Base, and while I was attending Grace Independent Baptist Church in Ocean Springs, a deacon by the name of Carol Tussey, Pastor Paul Perkins preached our anniversary days not too long ago. He is the father-in-law. He was the father-in-law of Paul Perkins. And Carol Tussey, he comes over to my side of the church. He takes me by the arm, and he takes me all the way over to the other side of the church. This is a much bigger church than this. He took me all the way over to the other side, and he hooked me up with a man named Zach Castillo. And he said, you need to meet this man. He's stationed where you're going. And Zach told me at that point, when you get to Rapid City, he just happened. When you get to Rapid City, you need to go to Liberty Baptist Tabernacle. And then later on at the end of my career, I just happened to get orders back here. Now, you got to understand, I'm not a social butterfly. I know I have to pretend to be now that I'm pastor. But when I was in that church in Mississippi, Zach would have only been there for one or two Sundays at most. He was just there for seven-level training. And there's no way I would have entered to that other side of the church. That's not me. Adrian wasn't there. That's right. Um, when, even when I was here the first time, I used to be here with Adrian. I sat about with Tim and Brandy are, and when the service was over, I bolted out. And uh, I, I just don't like y'all. <laughs> I took that as you don't like me either. Amen. Uh, <laughs> Anyway, I can just see how God's been at work. I could give you example after example of how I can look back now over my life and I can see how God has just directed when, when I didn't know He was at work. And it, it wasn't by chance. It wasn't a coincidence. It wasn't luck. But it was God at work in my life. We can see God's providence in many areas of the Bible. One of the best examples outside of Esther is found in the life of Joseph. Very long story short, I don't have time to get into it all, but his brothers sold him into slavery, which eventually led him into Egypt, where he would eventually be in command of Egypt, second only behind Pharaoh. And God used that to save many people alive, including the children of Israel. And they come down and become the nation of Israel after they're released uh, hundreds of years later. How about Moses' mother, who just happened to float Moses down the river at the time Pharaoh's daughter would just happen to go bathe herself 
And Pharaoh's daughter would just happen to see this ark in the, in the reeds and would just happen to open the basket and, and God would just happen to have Moses cry to tug on her heart. And she would just happen to take this child in when her dad was commanding that all the Hebrews be put to death. It's God's providence. It's, it's interesting how even through very difficult and trying circumstances, we can cry out to be delivered from those. We don't want to go through that trouble and that anguish, and yet they are God's way of working in our life. And then He wants us to take that and work in the lives of others. Someone said the word disappointments should be spelled with a capital H, making disappointments His appointments. God permits what we call disappointments and even tragedies for a reason. I know you didn't want to go through it. None of us do. But God has a purpose. God's providence is at work in your life. Ruth is another great example of God's providence. Knowing nothing of the area of Bethlehem. When she arrives in Bethlehem, she just happened to glean in the field of Boaz. In fact, the Bible says in Ruth 2.3, And she went and came and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and her hap, or by happen, happenstance, uh, was to light on a part of the field belonging unto Boaz, who was of the kindred of Elimelech. Man looks at it and says, Wow, what were the chances that she would have ended up gleaning in Boaz's field? The Bible says in Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. Boaz just happened to be a kinsman redeemer. And he just happened to marry a Gentile bride. And he just happened, and she just happened to end up in the lineage of Christ. <laughs> How about what happened to Ahab? He was king over the house of Israel. He's a very wicked man. One day by chance, as we would say, he would be shot by an arrow. Remember that account? 1 Kings twenty two thirty four. And a certain man drew a bow at a venture and smote the king of Israel between the joints of the harness. Wherefore he said unto the driver of his chariot, Turn thine hand and carry me out of the host, for I am wounded. I love what one preacher said about a certain man drew a bow at a venture. He basically said there were two rednecks sitting out in the woods and they said, See that thing moving over there off in the distance? How much you want to bet I can hit that? Well, Ahab died that day. By the way, that's why there is no Sasquatch. Because where I come from, you shoot and then you figure out what it is you shot. There's something in the bushes over there. Well, Ahab died that day. The soldier drew his bow at a venture, which is telling us he not aiming at anything in particular. I mean, he's aiming at that chariot, obviously, but he just drew his bow at a venture. But it was God's providence that put that action into his heart. And it was God's providence that delivered that arrow right into Ahab for judgment. Many would have said Ahab was unlucky. But what was viewed as a tragic accident was God's providence at work. How many times do we look at something tragic God's at work. We may not like how He's at work, but He's at work. We could go on and on with examples of God's providence both in the Bible and outside of the Bible. 
In our own nation's founding, we can see God's providential hand at work. Battles which once seemed lost during the revolution, the weather just happened to change to give the advantage. It's just amazing. And we see God's providence here in the book of Esther. In chapter 1, Esther just happens to be chosen as the next queen. In chapter 6, the king is unable to sleep. He just happens to not be able to sleep this particular night. And he just so happens, in order to help him get back to sleep, he wants a bedtime story. So he says, I want you to grab the book of the records and read them to me. And listen, anytime you read minutes, it should put you to sleep. <laughs> and they bring the records, they start reading it to him. And the one reading just happens to read about Mordecai, just happening to hear of a plot to destroy and overthrow King Ahasuerus and how Mordecai thwarted it. And it just happened that that act that they're reading about had gone unrewarded, which led to the king honoring Mordecai at just the right moment in history. Psalm 115 verse 3 says, But our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever He hath pleased. Psalm 135 in verse 6, Whatsoever the Lord pleased, that did He in heaven and in earth, in the seas, in all deep places. Daniel 4.35, And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And He doeth according to His will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay His hand or say unto Him, What doest thou? Ephesians 1.11 says of God, Who worketh all things after the counsel of His own will. We need to understand that God is ultimately in control of everything. He orchestrates things on the world stage. Say, what's going on in Russia and Ukraine? Why have you been so silent about it? Because there's a lot of corruptions on both sides, whether you like to hear that or not. And so I'm just keeping my mouth shut till more is known. But what's going on there? God is at work. He can move pieces as He sees fit. And whatever may be the fallout from that, whether we get drug into a war or not, God is in complete control. God is in control of America. He knows how bad the Bidens are tied up in corruption with Ukraine and China and Russia and all the rest. He knows it. God is in complete control. The Bible says He is the governor among the nations. Nothing goes without Him knowing about it. He's never disturbed. He's never caught off guard. He knows exactly where you're at. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He knows your name. He knows what's going on in your life. And don't you dare look up to God and say, you don't care about me. He does care about you. He died for you. He's in complete control. We need to come to terms with the fact that God will run everything according to His pleasure, not according to ours. Philippians 2.13, For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. Acknowledge God in all your ways, and He shall direct thy paths. You need to look for God in every one of your circumstances in this life. God's providence does not exempt us from walking with God, from honoring Him, from doing right by His Word. 
I don't want you to walk away with that impression. But we can trust that God is always at work behind the scenes. I don't have time to get into testimonies again. But I can tell you there have been things in my life that I have been greatly disappointed at. Only to find out years later it was God at work and it was to my benefit. Trust God. Let's pray.